You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads lead us to discovery? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, S.D. Sykes, the author of The Good Death, joins us. Then after a break, Deborah Spector talking about eating disorders. And finally, Rory Vesey with a new segment called Rory's Island. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, well, lovely to be here. Thanks for, thanks for the invite. So let me if I get this correct, because this is great. This is what the Wall Street Journal wrote about your book, The Good Death. Sykes does a beautiful job in bringing life to an epic when science was often as dangerous as superstition. So I'm a big fan of crime novels, mystery novels. I think they have a special place in my heart as well as special genre. And I wonder if you agree with this definition I came across. And feel free to disagree. You would not be the first person told me I'm way off base with a lot of stuff that I'm asking. But the definition is at the heart of a mystery novel is at least one puzzle, if not several. Something bad happens, often a murder, and the novel takes the reader and protagonist on a journey of discovery. Are you taking us on a journey of discovery with this book, The Good Death? Yes, I, I, well, I hope to be. I mean, that's always the, the aim when you start writing a novel is to take your, your reader on a journey um, uh, that leads somewhere really interesting. But, but you know, it, it, there's a mystery at the heart. There's, there's uh, all of that sort of narrative going on. But there's also... Hopefully, something else as well—a theme, uh, taking your reader to to a place sort of that um, they haven't been before, to think about things they maybe haven't thought about before. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of multifaceted, I think. But at, at its heart, yeah, you know, you've got to take the reader on on a journey of discovery to find out who committed the murder. Uh, that's your main narrative drive. A little bit, you. If you don't, a little bit about you, if you don't mind, because I, I think. There's two stories. There's stories inside the covers of the book, and then there's the stories outside of the covers. What I'd like to learn more about for myself as well as my audience, a little bit about the person who creates the story, in this case, The Good Death. I, this is a very interesting observation. Someone observed that their voice, your voice, is squeezing out a life, that it's it, well, coming out of, out of us is really our lives through our, through our voice. As a writer, what are you squeezing out? Such a good question. Um, do you know, sometimes I, I'll go back and read a book that I, I wrote two or three years ago, and then I think, God, you know, that's what that book was about. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't actually know. I didn't realise it at the time. I mean, I'm writing uh, in the first person as a young man, so clearly I am not a young man. Um, so it's quite interesting to, to look at the world through that perspective. And, and he's not only a young man, he's a young man from nearly 700 years ago. So I'm looking at the sort of history of, of England and, um, but also his, the, the books themselves, uh, there's five of them and they are um, a coming of age uh, story over five novels, if you like. Right. So I, I'm also squeezing out how a, a, young, a young man kind of copes with the world, I suppose. And where that comes from, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, having questions is really important. I, I think we question who we are, where we're coming from. Me as a person, as an interview, and you as a writer, that keeps us going because we have all the answers. What's left to think and ponder about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why you, you sit down and start writing, actually, is to try and make sense of the world through stories. That's my, that's my way of making sense of the world. Now, when somebody goes to a bookstore and sees your book called The Good Death, the title is always, for me, a point of purchase. In medieval times, what was, quote, unquote, a good death? Yeah, it was a, it was a title. It was, it was knocking around for a while. I, um, probably two or three years ago, I came across the concept of what a good death was. And it's two, it's two words that don't necessarily fit together that well to our minds, does it? You know, it's not good to die. Um, but it was an extremely important concept in the 14th century because um, it was very important to, to die in, in, in the correct way, you know, having uh, gone through uh, the, the right rituals religiously. So you, you'd have had um, confession, uh, communion and anointing. And that 
meant that your passage through to to through purgatory, which right. they you know they had a very uh, fundamental belief in, that your passage through purgatory would be be fast and or at least you know um, not too difficult, and then the heaven would be, the gates of heaven would be waiting for you at the end. So unless you went through these. There's quite a ritualized um, uh, process before you died. You didn't, you weren't considered to have a, had a good death. And right. Right. You know, the, the sort of consequences of that were quite, quite frightening. If you're just joining us, this is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest in segment one is the author of The Good Death, Sarah Sykes. So if I was running a book club, and I don't want to have any, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there's one <laughs> character in my mind. In the beginning of the book, she's almost a representation of female agency. And then later on, she becomes, quote unquote, a femme fatale. I don't know how you want to handle that because there's a lot there that's unleashed later on in the book. But this one character I'm thinking about really mm-hmm. has two sides to her, how I'm, how I'm observing her, interpreting her in, early in the book. And then later on, mm-hmm. what we learn about her at the back end of the book, which is really dramatic. Yes, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, she does start off with agency. She's she's very proactive, um, and then she becomes under the she comes under the spell of of gosh, I don't want to give too much away here, but yeah, she 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 disappoints us in in that respect. I think. Um, but I've become very interested in women in real life crime who who are in that position who seem in themselves to be quite strong characters, but somehow or other come under the spell of a man and whom um, end up doing really dreadful things to, to please that man. <laughs> um, now, there's two different times. It, it happens a lot. It happens yeah. a lot. It was, it was too, there's too much there for me to ignore. You know, you do see this again and again in crime. Did you have that arc in mind when you sat down to write the book? I, I did, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I like to di- mis, you know, misdivert my my readers, I suppose. So, um, yeah, I, I had. Uh, I don't know. Oh, God, God. Uh, <laughs> we we want, but this great. this is a great tease because now they're going to have to buy the book and read it. But I, yeah, lo- they are. I <laughs> love, I love what you did as I got engaged into their narrative, went from page to page to page. Now there are two different times in this book. I believe it's. 1349 and 1370. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So here's yeah. another thought that I had. And this is just me thinking about the mother in 1370. In a sense, mm-hmm. is this book the last bedtime story this woman is going to have? Absolutely, yeah. It's it's um, She's got a very close relationship with her son, the protagonist, Oswald. Um, but she has to die as part of this. We were talking earlier about the good death. Part of a good death was to forgive those who had trespassed against you. And she has in her possession a letter, and she knows that something has been done against her, and she wants to know what it is. And she wants to die in a state of having forgiven her son. Um, so their relationship is is very key to all five books, if you if you read it. Um, it's very much the end of their journey. And when... Uh, you know, when she does finally die at the end, they, they, she says something along the lines of, you know, we, we die with our accounting balance. So right. that, you, you know, we, we're happy, you know, we've, we've, we've sorted out our problems and I can now die as a, a contented woman. And you can go forward with your life without me kind of <laughs> hanging around, causing you all sorts of trouble, which she does, you know, she, she is that sort of, she is that sort of woman. In today's world, one day events can seem like a lifetime, but they change from day to day to day. Once again, in terms of the historical perspective of this time frame, 1349 to 1370, what mm-hmm. changes have occurred over approximately 21 years? Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, massive changes. So um, the Black Death, which, you know, we're talking about 1348 to 1350, it killed half the population of England um, half the population of, of, of Europe, actually. And that created this very different society. I mean, we, we see it, we see a little bit, uh, you know, we both, we've been through a pandemic, haven't we, yes. during the last year. And we are starting to see 
societal changes because of, of or at least we are in England. I don't know what, what it's like for you guys, but um, we're starting, my, my, my children in, in their 20s, and whereas when I started work, I went to an office. Well, neither of them are going into an office, for example. So these are sorts of things that we, we're seeing now. But if you go back to the 1350s, you see a society that was left with half the amount of people that it had, you know, <laughs> in the 1340s. Right. And the big change there was that um, there was suddenly a shortage of labour. There weren't enough people to work in the fields. It, um, suddenly people were able to demand higher wages, which is another parallel to now, because we've got a problem in, in Britain with uh, lorry drivers. There just aren't enough lorry drivers. So guess what? Their wages are going up. <laughs> and this is what you saw very much across society uh, in the 1350s was um, a real kind of growing in confidence and agency of poorer people. I have to, that, yeah, I have to yeah. ask you as the person who created this narrative, what you were writing during COVID, did this affect how the book unfolded or did it didn't change it at all? Because you were experiencing COVID, a pandemic, and you're writing about yeah. the Black Plague. So there is some interconnections there. But did it change at all your approach to writing the book? <sighs> just gave me the greatest amount of sympathy for um for the people of the 14th century to be honest with you because um they didn't know what this plague was they had no way of curing it they had no furlough schemes they had no hospitals um you know obviously you know it was it was been horrible for us i'm not trying to decry what we've all been through but imagine you know in, in britain i think we've we've the death rate is something like 0.1 of 1%, um, which is terrible, but it's not 50%. Do, do, do you see what I mean? It was, right. <laughs> it's um, an incredible difference. So, so yeah, I mean, I had uh, the earlier books in the series are all set around these plague years. So I've, I've explored plague a lot in my writing. And so it was really strange and kind of ironic to then actually live lived through our, our equivalent of a plague. It was, uh, it, yeah, as I say, it gave me the, it gave me a kind of spooky uh, respect for, for what, what they must have been through, yeah. So why this particular era did you decide to write five books in a series? This is a major commitment on your part. Now, I love series because they're what I call an ensemble group, like in acting. Yeah. You get caught up in their characters and you want to follow them along and the threads mm. and where they're at. So why did you decide to focus as a writer on this time frame? Because that is a major commitment. I, I think it's because time frames like, like this, you know, when you have a, a major change in society, something like a revolution or a war, these are times of great change and, and uh, all sorts of Things happen after that, you know, the sort of the, the oppressed rise, the great fall, there are all sorts of opportunists who, who come into the scene and, and there's all this, this change going on in the background. So rather than just, you know, if I'd set my books in the 13, the 40, sorry, the 1340s or, or 30s, then they just wouldn't have been this background of amazing, dramatic socioeconomic changes for me to actually bring into my books as well. Um, I mean, my, my books are primarily crime novels, but I, I love to explore the whole effect of, of this plague on, on society. And then it throws out all sorts of narrative possibilities. So let's, let's take, not a deep dive, but let's dip our toes into the water metaphysically and go back to <laughs> 13, 1349 and set the yeah. scene when we first meet Oswald de Lucy, because this sets off everything, what he witnesses in the woods or the forest or whatever. Yeah, he's he's a he's a young guy. He's he's eighteen. He's on the the verge of taking his, uh, you know, his commitment to becoming a, a monk. Uh, his vows, and in terms of his family life, he's the third living son. He's he's kind of been he's a spare spare, so he's not important to them. Um, and he's being brought up more or less by a, a chap called uh, Brother Peter. He's very close to him for reasons that come out in other books. And um, and he's been sent into the forest to, to look for herbs. And he stumbles across a young woman who he tries to help. And no matter what he does, 
you know, she, she, she's so traumatised by something that we, we don't know what that thing is, although we can kind of imagine that she, she flees him and she, she actually runs into a river and, and drowns. And this is, a, as you can imagine, an, abs- you know, an absolutely dreadful thing to happen. You're trying to help somebody and you've actually made the situation very much worse. So for him, it's a, it's a real a turning point in his life, I suppose. It so, kicks off. It kicks off the whole five stories. So, once again, for people who are fans of history, take us inside the monastery. Give us a physical description. And I ask you that because I think the hardest thing a writer has to do is set a scene—not just what it looks like, but what it feels like, what the weather feels like. If it's really hot, if it's really cold, how do you get that across to a reader? Well, I'm very lucky because living in, in England, we still have this, you know, we have this incredible history sort of all around us. And in fact, I, I live in a part of, um, of southeast England, uh, a county called Kent, and it's sort of one of the best preserved medieval landscapes in, in, in Europe, apparently. Right. So we do have an awful lot of kind of, uh, you know, stately homes, religious uh, churches particularly. Now, unfortunately, as you will know, the uh, the monasteries were actually dissolved and destroyed by Henry VIII, sort of 150 years after my books. But um, I've been lucky enough to, to visit many uh, monasteries and, and uh, in Europe and um, and be be able to sort of get that whole kind of it's very important for me to actually go to historic uh, sites and sit there and try to imagine what life must have been like um 700 years ago you know i, I don't know how else to do it <laughs> there we know because you just told us is at least one person who's passed away we find out there are a lot it's more like by five missing women and mm. there's a phrase we use right now in the political world rush to judgment. I think that's also an interesting component because they've got a group of people who've gotten together. They think they know who's done this, think they know who the suspect is. But in my mind, that is the epitome of what happens when you have rush to judgment. Can you amplify on that? I think it was a, a massive problem for the times um, because they didn't really have a police force of any description. He had a local constable, but he was just a kind of part-time, a part-time role. Um, you know, you can just imagine with, without any sort of decent uh, uh, policing, any any f- remote form of sort of forensics or anything like that, that, that it's very easy just to jump on the obvious target, the usual suspect, you know, the person who was slightly odd, the person who who was an outsider, the, the you know... The, the, it's mob rule, isn't it? You know, we, right. we, we still, we, we're slightly inclined to it as a human race, aren't we? We can see it even now. I, I can see echoes of this happening in, <laughs> in social media. It's not something that's just the preserve of the 14th century. You know, it's a, it's a human uh, reaction. Yeah, you, you pick on the obvious person because that solves the problem. But um, obviously, it, <laughs> that isn't always, they're not always the guilty culprit, are they? I want to remind our listeners, my guest is Sarah Sykes. The book is, she writes under S.D. Sykes. The book is called The Good Death. And we mentioned um, science versus superstition. We're still kind of wrestling with that today. What is the distinction between, this fascinated me, between a physician and a surgeon in those times? Yeah, it it fascinated me as well when I was doing my research because it's kind of... um, it's kind of it's it's about it's about turns now. If you say that you're a physician, um, right? It's kind of you know, or sorry, a surgeon. That's a really um, prestigious thing to be, isn't it? It's one level up. It's one level up from just being your, the your personal doctor. Oh, you're a physician. Absolutely. You're a surgeon. Yeah. You got miracle hands or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But, but unfortunately, in those times, and it, you know, you read about the medicine of those those days, and, and it is toe curling because <laughs> basically, a barber surgeon was a person who would cut your hair or, or set your bones, or even you know, they even did some really kind of brutal, very primitive surgery called trepanning, or I think that's how you pronounce it, which is where it was basically brain surgery, where they would cut uh, a circle of your skull out to hopefully sort of release. 
uh, pressure within within your um, within your brain. Uh, I think you know on the rare occasions that might have worked. Obviously, for most people, uh, it didn't, and it ended in death. But they were very philosophical about this. You know, if if you if you had surgery and died, well, that was the will of God. So the, the surgeon wasn't <laughs> blamed. Um, um, very different to how we would feel, I think. So yes, so um, it, being a surgeon was was a kind of a lower order job. It wasn't something that a, a nobleman would go into. Whereas, you know, if you were more educated, you would become a physician and you'd study. Well, you study kind of uh, the, the the teachings of Galen, which go back to the, the antiquity. You know, the humorism, right. the you know the, the four humors, which had you know hadn't moved on and since hadn't moved on for sort of more than a thousand years. So it's uh, it was a it was a it was a bad time to be ill, basically. <laughs> well, that so that begs the question: What was the lifespan of the? Typical person in that time frame. Forget about the bubonic plague because that obviously shortened a lot of time, lives of people. But what was the average time span? Because we do know you give us a flavor of that, no pun intended, with the foods they had. Unless if you came from just the villagers as opposed to people that had a little, a little bit better off, the Woodstock family, the Lucy family, people mm-hmm. like that. So what was the time span? Well, you know, you, you, the infant mortality was enormous. So you're looking at that really bringing down average lifespan um, tremendously. Um, I think, uh, you know, by the time you were 30 as a woman, you were considered to be kind of rather long in the tooth and, and, and definitely not, not a person that a man would want to marry. Um, that said, you know, if you were wealthy and... You know, a lot, of, a lot of their lives were very healthy. You know, they were eating whole foods. They were doing a lot of exercise. Um, if you kept away from disease and uh, pestilence, whatever, and you ate well, then you. some people lived a very, very long time. The Empress Matilda um, in the 12th century lived to be about 89. And I think she went to Jerusalem about three or four times, you know. So it wasn't as if everybody died when they were 30, but it, it was... It wasn't, um, they wouldn't have expected the sort of lifespans that we, we have for sure. And you could die of such bizarre things like cutting your finger and getting, um, you know, infected that way. Or, or there are all these, these many, many diseases out there that could, could kill you apart from, from the plague, um, all sorts of things. So, yeah, <laughs> not a great time to live, I don't think. All right. So, um You've got a lot of fascinating characters. Personally, um, family trees really capture my attention. Oswald's family tree is so mm-hmm. central to this story. No spoiler alerts, but it mm. kind of reminds me of um, the Game of Thrones. Illicit relationships, <laughs> dark cask- uh, castles. There, there's no um, dragons in this, but there are things in the shadows, in the darkness which yeah. invokes fear in a lot of us through mythology. So you'd want to touch upon his family tree at all? Yeah, he's, um, I say he's, he's uh, the third son, the third living son of um, a chap called, uh, a lord called Henry de Lacy, um, um, who is no longer alive in, in uh, well, he's, he's no longer alive in the second part of this, you know, the second time frame. Um He's very close to his mother, who is a, who is an aged woman who has managed to uh, live into her seventies. Um, his older brothers die um, during the, the, the time frame of this book. So, but he doesn't have an awfully close relationship with them because of this, the fact that he was sent to a monastery at the age of eight as an oblate to be educated by by the monks. So, his his family connections are. They're quite um, remote in some some respects. He didn't have that sort of family upbringing. You know, there wasn't this sort of nuclear family in the way that, that we would we would expect. He was he was just uh, you know he had a role in the family, which was to to go to the monastery, take his vows, and hopefully then grow grow up to become an abbot and then be of use to back to the family. There was I think that was that that idea in those days was that you know you were. <laughs> you had a, a role assigned to you and, and that always sort of fed back into where you sat in the family and how useful you would be to them in the future. So um, there's love there, but 
between, particularly between him and his mother. And he, he has a fiery, difficult relationship with his sister. But um, his relationship with his brothers is based on some pretty dreadful treatment at their hands as a young boy under the age of eight. And that does obviously have echoes throughout the years. So, um, so you mentioned a young boy. I don't know if this is a Rosetta Stone, but there's a chip of a Rosetta Stone in your story. And that's a toy night. And how yes. and that tells that tells a lot in the beginning and then later on at the end. Um, mm-hmm. I love what you did with that. A very simple little <laughs> object. All of us had toy soldiers when we were kids. This was a toy night that was very special to Oswald. Something happened to it, he thinks, and later on it comes back into the storyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well I I loved I, you know, I before I wrote novels, I had screenplays in development, and uh, I love the sort of the ima- an image of a little object that can uh, run throughout a story and have significance, even though it, in itself it's a very small and rather insignificant thing. Um, I, you know, there's nothing more precious to a child, is there, than a, a toy that his father's given him. When, when the father returns from London, you know, even though it's a, he realizes later on it's a rather cheap and uh, um, kind of unimportant thing, but as a child it meant so much to him. And then to see what happens to that, it's a metaphor, isn't it? Yes, I think. <laughs> but, but I love what you did with it, and I oh, won't give it away because there's, an, there's another spoiler alert. Spoiler alert at, at at the end. So here in the states we have masterpiece theater. We get a lot of programs from the BBC. All things great and small, the Harriet books, I adore. The storyline, the setting in England and the countryside. Mm-hmm. So in your mind, and I didn't know that you have a background as a screenwriter, do you see a TV series with these five books? Oh, gosh, I would love that. I had, I had, I had an option for a while, um, but you know how these things go they they lapse but who knows um um, i'm actually working on the tv series at at the moment but it's a very completely different thing it's a a, a contemporary sort of psychological thriller but yeah i would absolutely adore for this these to be made into uh, um a tv series uh i think things go in fashions don't they um for a while there was a lot of uh a lot of attention on on the medieval probably going back to game of thrones as you um, you mentioned earlier, I think, although, it, you know, it's a fantasy world, it's very, med- it's a medieval fantasy, fantasy world. Yes, so, yes. Um, so, yeah, I haven't, I haven't yet seen the new Ridley Scott movie, uh, The Last Jewel, but that's set in the 14th century. So maybe, <laughs> maybe things are sort of coming back again. And um, yeah, but I would, I, would I, I think when I'm writing, I think in scenes, I, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit of a frustrated director, I think. And so I'm always imagining each scene, uh, how it would be filmed and who'd be acting in it. And, you know, I fancy cast it. So <laughs> I very much, in my mind, it's a TV series. Well, good for you. I'll mention one of the series that, that I've watched, which I don't know if they're ever going to bring it back. They came out of the BBC, and that's Luther. Lu- oh, yeah. Luther amazing. Is, is, a, is amazing. I guess it will come back, actually. Um, uh, I think Idris Elba's moved on to to other things but yeah it's, it's a it's a really good series isn't it with, with fantastic dark characters and um i love the london because you know i know that part of london really well so i love i love the setting as well all right the last thing i'm going to ask you i know what my definition of success is mine is when i put a, put a book down no matter where i am and it's three o'clock in the morning and i'm waking up and i'm still thinking about this book where it's going to go, and the questions I'm going to ask. How do you find success as a writer? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, there's so many ways to judge success, aren't there? You know, it could be book sales, could be reviews. Um, you know, I had, um, I had, a, uh, <laughs> I had a lovely uh, message, a sort of fan email from a, a rabbi in Ohio, uh, the other day, and it, that just really touched me because, you know, just reaching out across the, <laughs> across the continents, how how wonderful that my book spoke to somebody on in you know on the other side of the world. So, I suppose that's you know I love to think that people read my books and enjoy them. That that's that's my my view of success. I got to thank you. My guest has been Sarah Sykes. The book is called The Good Death. Sarah. 
You've been very, very gracious. I've thoroughly enjoyed having a conversation with you. Oh, me, me too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Larry. It's been wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. After the break, Deborah Spector joins us talking about her book, Addressing Eating Disorders. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest, Deborah Spector, is the author of The Things I've Seen People Do With and Without Food. She is a registered and certified dietitian and nutritionist, has been in private practice since 1990. And Deborah, nice to see you. We've had conversations over the phone, but via Zoom, we can actually see each other. So thank you for having next 25 minutes or so staring at me, but I really appreciate that. I appreciate your time, Larry. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And I am so delighted to meet you in person. So I was just having a conversation with Chris. A lot of times I wake up at like three o'clock in the morning and everything that I've DVR'd on television, I watch. So a few days ago, I watched The Good Doctor, which is a tremendous television program. And the main character is on the Asperger's autism spectrum. And the reason why I'm bringing up this episode, because there's a battle between a well-informed father of a patient in the hospital and the doctors themselves. And what I took away from that episode is very simply, knowledge is power. When you're, when you're working with your clients, your patients, how important is knowledge for power for yourself and also who you're trying to help? I, I totally agree. And I, it's a great start to this conversation, Larry. I have to say that as a registered dietitian, and one of the reasons I put that book together is because I feel like there's such misinformation and an influx of information, but not from people who are specialists or people in the field that people should be listening to. Like the doctors have separate people that do segments based on their specialty. There are lots of well-known people who stand up and promote or preach things that don't have that expertise. So for me, working with patients with eating disorders, which is a form of mental health and an issue, 30 million people will be affected by this form of, of mental health issue. And So they all say to me, right, I start with them and they say to me, but Deb, why do I need to see you? Like, I know everything about nutrition. And and Larry, believe me, they could probably tell you how many grams of fat is in a carrot. And then I look at them and I say, and you're you're telling me that because you're going to make an impression on me? I already know that. I'm a dietitian. So what I do differently is I educate my patients so they can understand. So for instance, why do you need carbohydrates? Why do you need fat? Why do you need, you don't need to be afraid of these things like this, the media, which is a big problem, portrays it to be, but why do you need it? And then how does that affect your health and your well-being and the, and the way your eating style is, which will decrease the kinds of behaviors that my patients use as a compensatory behavior because they've either starved themselves or eaten too much or exercised too long or done other things that are not appropriate for self-care, right? Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. I want to challenge you once again with my last television reference. HBO had a tremendous series called In Treatment um, with a therapist dealing with patients. For the first few seasons, was Gabriel Byrne as Dr. Paul Weston. And then the last year, which was amazing, was Yuzo, Yuzo of Duba as Dr. Brooke Taylor. And the question that I'm asking you, how does a therapist keep their own personal bias out of the patients they're dealing with. Is that difficult or you can kind of put that aside? So what's interesting about that is it is very difficult, but as a dietitian and I'm a medical provider, whereas a therapist has other regulations, Larry, that they have to follow with HIPAA, sometimes I'll use personal things. Like, I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at the book, right? But in the book, I come out in the first part about my own struggle that I had. And then some of the chapters and little essays I've written, mother-daughter relationship. And because it provides a relational feel that you're not, that they're not alone, right? So 
I'm a normal sized person in a normal body. I eat normal. I do everything normal. When my patients walk in, they're like, how do you eat Reese's peanut butter cups and you're that size, Deb? Right? How, how is it that you only exercise three or four times a week and you're that size, Deb? Right? I get a lot of, we call it in my field, Larry, transference. Right. Okay. Therapists are trained differently than dietitians are. I am more of what they call a nutritional therapist. And sometimes that familiarity or commonality that we provide for our patients makes them feel like, A, they're not alone and that they can manage, right? I just want to let people know who's joining us for the second segment of the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is Deborah Spector. The book is called The Things I've Seen People Do With and Without Food. So one of the takeaways from the book, because I did have a chance to read it, thank you very much for putting this book together because... Thank you, Larry. I learned an awful lot. In a sense, it changed the way I look at certain situations. So I really appreciate what you've done with this book. So tell us about the distinction between disordered meeting, eating and eating disorders. What's the difference? Okay, excellent. Excellent. And thank you, Larry. I'm glad you picked it up and I'm glad you had a chance and it really meant something to you because that's why I did it. If you can give that book to somebody else, that's why it's not an ebook, by the way. So you can take the book and physically give it to somebody else, which is brilliant. So the question you asked is what's the difference between an actual eating disorder and disordered eating? An eating disorder in and of itself meets the DSM criteria. Okay, so the DSM is who we, di- we use our diagnostic, diagnostic coding through, whereas disordered eating to me, interesting enough, is uh, typically most of the people that live in America. You know, they, they have an abnormal relationship with their bodies, right. an abnormal relationship with food. In America, Larry, dieting is a form of disordered eating. And how do you know that? Because one of my debisms, which you saw, which everybody loves my debisms, if diets worked, there would only be one. Well, guess what? It's a trillion-dollar industry. Dieting, all the different products that they sell, the labels, the gym memberships, the, all these different things. And, and, right, you saw on TV this morning, finally, something that you and I were going to talk about, this social media and how it's affecting our children. If, if Instagram posts, Larry, something like, you know, drink this product and you're going to lose two inches off your thighs and the people they're gearing it towards are 12-year-olds to 15-year-olds, let me tell you, they're going to use your your Amazon account and you're going to get a delivery tomorrow. It's bad. Go ahead. So you touched upon this, but I want to share with the listeners the front page of the New York Post on October the 27th, 2021. Headline says, Thin Sane. Instagram push sickening anorexic content like this and his pictures of this to teen girls and execs didn't stop it. Um, we had a little bit of a conversation on the phone about this. This really, really bothers me about the responsibility of putting these messages out to very impre- impressionable girls and the damage has been done. So when you sit down with somebody in your practice and they have gone through this, how do you unravel it? It's, it's very difficult. A lot of it is building trust. A lot of it is going in the direction they want me to go. You know, Larry, being in private practice for 31 years, it's not just the training that you have, but it's the years of experience dealing with adolescents and teenagers to help them navigate their, their searches, what they're looking at. You know, I have, I have teenagers, Larry, who, who, you know, they value what their app is saying on their, their Apple right. app or whatever right. it is, the, the My Fitness Pal, more than they value or trust themselves. You know, asking a kid, right, are you hungry? Are you not hungry? Why are you eating that? Why are you not eating that? So many people with the disordered eating modality have lost touch with their sense of self. Most of us don't even know. Larry, when I interview a patient at my first visit, I ask them, I want to ask you, what does physical hunger feel like to you? Do you know how many patients look at me and they say something like this? I don't know. I don't remember. Or how about this one? They'll give me the right answer, Larry. And then they'll say something like, I'll I'll ask them, all right, that's right. When you have that feeling, are you always giving yourself permission to eat? No. Why? You know, I'll delay it. I'll have like a piece of fruit. I'll have an apple. I'm going out to dinner with my friends later. I'm not going to ruin my appetite. I mean, Larry, I've heard it all. 
I mean, as you know, you've heard it all. Well, this this is, I I want to check something. This is thought in my mind when you said, I've heard it all. I've referenced this before because this podcast is for storytellers of all types and all genres. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a great writer from South America, says we have three lives, a public life, a private life, and a secret life. And I want to reference a secret life because I think a lot of us have this internal dialogue in our head, but it never comes out and being verbalized. So when you're dealing with somebody as a patient and they have these internal dialogues going on, in a sense, their secret life, how do you unravel that? A lot of it is, again, the experience and trust. Okay, some of the stories that I've written in the book or the essays I put together are things I've heard in my years of experience, Larry. I mean, they just keep it bottled up. You know, eating disorders is very different as a mental health crisis than, let's say, drug addiction or alcoholism or bipolar even, which, oh my God, you mentioned somebody's bipolar back in the day or back in the day it was called manic depressive. People were terrified, schizophrenia, terrified. Eating disorders, people think it's literally a food problem or a number on a scale. And I'm like, no, it has, that is the vehicle, right? right? So the right. vehicle or the control mechanism is the food or what they think they can control with their bodies. But where the problem is, Larry, is all upstairs. It's all in here, right? So people don't call me just a dietitian or nutritionist. They call me a nutritional therapist. Why? Because my role is to help my patients establish a normal relationship with food and weight and body image so they can appreciate their lives. here's Here's what fascinates me. You're talking about the hierarchy of addiction. You've got sexual addictions, smoking, alcohol, drug abuse. You you write about this in your book. Possibly the hardest addiction to break is a food addiction because we need food to live. We know know people who are smokers. They can't break that addiction. People struggle with alcohol abuse and drug addiction, but there's ways out of it through AAA. There's treatment protocols. You can get into a physical environment where a lot of marathon runners use marathon running and physical uh, exercise to counteract. It's changing uh, negative addiction or obsession for a positive one. So how do you deal with that in a sense? If we need food to live, and it's also a very strong addiction, how do you break that cycle? So a lot of, and I agree with everything you just said, Larry, a lot of it is what you said earlier in the podcast. It's about education. All right. So if somebody can understand why they need the nutrients that their body needs, right? So I asked everybody, Hey, write down a couple of menus, you know, bring them in. Let's, let's take a look together. It's not judgmental. It's just me looking. And then the, and there's never judgmental Larry ever. And then, and then the education begins. So they understand what it is that they're doing or what they should be doing. And then we take what's called baby steps. Right. You know, I'm not the dietitian because I specialize in eating disorders that gives meal plans to my patients. You know, Larry, early on in the days, you know, of my early training as a dietitian, we are trained, to be honest, to give meal plans and to teach food categories and all that stuff, measure and weigh food. Are you kidding me? You cannot stick to a meal plan on a cruise. You cannot go to Italy on a meal plan. You're not bringing your tablespoon or your teaspoon or quarter cup measure to your brother's bar mitzvah. It's not happening. So if you can't figure out how to get that education across, which is my job, that's how they change that. Why? Because Larry, you're right. You can never stop eating. You'd be dead, right? How to establish that normal relationship because it still has to be a relationship. But my patients who are recovered, Larry, and yes, recovery from an eating disorder is possible. I have colleagues of mine who say no, but I have too many recovered patients, Larry. I don't know if you follow me on Instagram or my professional Facebook page, but they're very verbal and they're very open. I'm doing a book signing in a couple of weeks. And let me tell you something, they're recovered. They have full lives. One of my patients studied for the bar exam, passed the bar exam. She's got her own practice. Another one is getting married in a week. She's a teacher. Her parents said she can't go away to school because of her anorexia, but she did. So, right? So, that's it. Another little thing I took out of the book that I never even thought about the side of the mouth that we chew on. 
We chew on our right. Oh. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this this really said, I didn't know this. And I love the taste of food, by the way. Um, if we chew on the right side, we're right-handed. We chew on the left side, we're left-handed. But you're saying people who chew on one side or the other are not really tasting their food. Where does that come from? That is, isn't that brilliant? Don't you love that chapter, by the way? And just so you know, I just ate with one of my patients. We had chips together. Right. And it blew her away to do the eating exercise. I do it at least once a week in my office for the patient. So what's kind of fascinating about, remember, I'm a dietitian. So I'm a science major. So my thought process is very science oriented in the background that I've learned. So human physiology, biology, microbiology, I'm not going to bore you. But we learned about the tongue. And part of the tongue, Larry, it's a muscle. It starts a little bit down in the bottom and on the top, and it comes up. In the top of the tongue, there are thousands of taste buds. If you're a one side chewer and the tip of your tongue, it is, is sweet. Okay, I'll, I'm going to make a, a, a segue into that in a minute. If you're eating something that's candy, like Halloween is coming up this weekend. I have an awesome, funny post that I'm going to put on my Instagram account for Halloween. And you put chocolate in your mouth here, chew it on the right and swallow it. Chew it on the right, swallow it, right? What what is happening is you're not going to feel satisfied. You're going to keep eating chocolate. You ever watch, I, I can give you an example. Do you ever watch a child eat an ice cream cone, lick an ice cream cone? I have. Larry, chill. You have, because you have you have your daughter, right? So if you watch a kid lick an ice cream cone, you ready? They never finish it. They usually give it to the parents who finish it, but they never do because they are satisfied. Because the tip of your tongue is where you taste sweet. But if you're chewing on one side or the other, Larry, you're not there. You're not tasting. It's very interesting, isn't it? When you really put it into thought, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Now I want to go to another area because this is for the parents and the kids out there. In the perfect world, if there is a perfect world, mother-daughter relationships are constantly changing and evolving. You wrote about this, mother-daughter relationships in therapy groups, and I'm gonna kind of extrapolate from that, learn behavior. So what have you witnessed? What kind of insights can you share with us? So, I love that's one of my favorite chapters because I reference my own daughter, right? So when I had that training, Larry, I was a young girl, I had no children, and it didn't, it didn't, you know, it was not relational. So, so if you're standing there as a parent and you're constantly saying in front of your children and boys and girls, by the way, because guys struggle too, I have whole chapters on that, very verbal about guys and their struggles now too. If you're constantly commenting about your body, oh my God, look at how much weight I've gained, this is so tight on me. I can't eat breakfast tomorrow. I'm going to skip lunch because I'm going out to dinner with my friends. For an Your kids listen to everything you're saying. So in that group, Larry, I had patients. It was a mother-daughter group. And the girls were very young. And what was fascinating is they always had some kind of thought process from what their moms did with their food, weight, or body image. So one of my little girls, and I wrote about it in the book, she, she self-harmed her stomach. She would cut her stomach. Right. So the therapist in the group said, well, why is that? She said, well, my mom is beautiful. And people say, I look like my mom. So if my mom says that her stomach is fat and disgusting, shouldn't I get rid of mine? And that's so like, think about how powerful that is right now. That's kind of powerful, isn't it, Larry? Very much so. I want to remind the listeners, my guest is Deborah Spector. The book is called The Things I've Seen People Do With and Without food. So I, I told you, I learned a lot from this book. I think it's going to make me in terms of dealing with people, hopefully, hopefully understanding and being a better person. Um, you have also one of the books, one of the, in the book, the legend of Edward Mondrake and something about a face in the front and a face in the back. Now, this is probably mythology because I love mythology, but can you share mm-hmm. with us where this is important in terms of you as a mental health professional? And what we could learn from that. Absolutely. So that that you just quoted is one of the testimonials from one of my patients. I'm actually doing the book signing at her studio. She's fully recovered. And that is her story, Larry. She actually also wrote a book about this twin. So it's sort of very similar to the eating disorder because eating disorders are a very shaming disorder. Again, it goes back to, like you said, like alcohol addiction, drug addiction, sex addiction, gambling, cigarette smoking. 
people could talk about it. People can understand it. Eating disorders is a very shameful, private, isolating form of mental health issue, right? That's what that twin is. He wanted to chop off that head. He would do anything to get rid of that head. And he ended up committing suicide. So he ended up dying at a very young age, right? So it's very similar to eating disorders. Mental health, Larry, do you know how many of my patients have suicide ideation or have thoughts about it? Hopefully not a plan in place because they just can't feel comfortable in their bodies. It's, 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 It's a problem. It's bigger than people believe. It really is. So can I ask you as a practitioner, and people can't see you, but we're doing this via Zoom, and you are very expressive with your hands. I am too. We talk with, I talk with my hands. I can see you talk with your hands. I can see your expression and your emotion. You're not just going through the emotions in terms of describing what you do. Um, There is, in this book, I am a huge Jackson Brown fan. Um, Late for the Sky, um, and his albums speak to me directly. But you have in this book you reference J.C. and Allison, and she has a song on her playlist, "Late for the Sky." So what am I referencing? So what should so that's another testimonial from one of my moms of a patient of mine who was severely anorexic. She actually has her story in the book, um, running on empty. I, I mean, she would run and she just couldn't find her way, like. How do you save your child? How, what do you do to do that? It's like running on empty. There's nowhere to go. There's no one to help you. And then when she walked in my office, she allowed me to, to guide her to help her child. You know how hard that is to do, Larry? Do you know how hard it is as a parent? You're a parent. I'm a parent. To give up your rights as a parent to somebody else because you are trusting that person's going to do right by your child. Right. Not easy. All right. I know there's some time constraints here. So we've got about maybe three or four minutes. Let me three minutes left. So your Debisms are beautiful. And it gives us a wide <laughs> range of experiences. So I don't know if you have a favorite one, but let's just talk about, um, because this is in everybody's house, the fridge. What are you writing? I think there's Debism number three, the fridge. Can you share with us that before we have to let you go? Sure. So I'm going to read the Debism, right? Because it's here. I know that you have it, right? Yeah. So the Debism says, I swear, my fridge said, what the hell do you want now? How many times? And then I write about, you know, the whole essay of the fridge. How many of us walk inside the house and just open the fridge? What are you doing? What are you looking for? Has anybody gone grocery shopping? Are you cooking right now? What's in there? right? So it calls you. It's this constant thing that makes you want to look inside. But, but Larry, if you ate already and you're not hungry or you, nobody's gone grocery shopping, there's no new foods in there. What are you looking for? My favorite Debism to go back to your question, I believe you're ready. The nine most ignorant words. You look like you don't have an eating disorder. What the hell are you talking about? What do people think an eating disorder looks like? It doesn't have a look, Larry, because it's inside here. It's inside your thoughts, right? That is a very powerful statement. I have to say that that's one of my favorite powerful statements. You To say that to somebody who actually can have the courage and be brave enough to say and come out, I have an eating disorder, maybe they just want to talk. Maybe they just want you to listen. You don't say you don't look like you have an eating disorder. That's dread, just dreadful. So that's one of my favorite debisms. All right. That's well said. We're going to leave it at that. I want to remind my audience, my guest, it has been to perspective. The book is called The Things I've Seen People Do With and Without Food. Deborah, thank you so much. Larry, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful, not only that you picked the book up, but you as a person I don't know, but who hasn't struggled with food or weight or body image that can even take something away to help you understand as well as to understand the way other people feel. It's why I wrote the book. And I appreciate this time together more than you can imagine. Thank you so much. Thank you. After the break, we finish with Rory Vesey with a new segment called Rory's Island. 
four, three, two, one. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast. Artful Periscope. Finally, Rory Vesey with a new segment we're calling Rory's Island. Andy Warhol said, art is what you can get away with. Chris Rock paraphrased that and said, in comedy, you can only get away with what your talent will allow. I grew up in the 60s and 70s watching the bold irreverence of the Smothers Brothers and George Carlin. I caught comedians like Joan Rivers, Tony Fields, Don Rickles, and Richard Pryor. They were always good for a shocking gasp and a laugh. I saw Roseanne take I Love Lucy to another level with her bitingly insightful detail on sex, homosexuality, and racism. When I was young, I used to write what you would now call Saturday Night Live skits. I would also change the words of advertisements in newspapers and magazines to make them funny and mail them to my relatives. In all of this, I was taking stabs at my mother's colorful family who was forever divided over an inheritance. We were disgruntled, but we were laughing. I knew nothing of comedy writers. I certainly wasn't an aspiring comic. I was just amusing myself and my family, though I did end up raising a son who became a comic. So now I pay attention to the making of comedy. My son was producing a show at the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor, and he could not be there. I was there, and he called to ask about the house. I said, good news, it's full, but let me put it this way. Everyone here has had a colonoscopy. I watched the first comedian, a successful comic, a young woman, not do as well as she had hoped. I suspected the older audience did not like the language or the stories that were coming out of her young, pretty face. So now Dante Nero is the headliner, and he's next. He's a big guy who wears huge heavy metal jewelry and has a large earring embedded in the lobe of his ear. I asked him in the green room if he was worried about playing to this crowd. Not at all, he said. I'm taking them hostage. And he walked out on stage. Dante leaned on a stool, took a sip of water, and went into his act and got a lukewarm response. Then he said to the audience, look, we can do this the fun way or the hard way. And he immediately focused on an elderly woman in the first row. And he said to her, don't just sit there. You know you did this in 1920, blatantly naming a sex act. The woman burst into laughter, and the audience was his for the rest of the night. We are the species with the most obvious sense of humor. Comedy reveals our truth as a people, and it often highlights injustice, prejudice, our differences, our wins, and our losses. Yet it paints us all with the same brush, the strokes of imperfection, and the ability to laugh at ourselves. An audience will laugh at themselves if you strike the truth chord, as Dante did. An audience will laugh at other cultures or groups, not to be mean, but because they recognize the differences as well as, surprise, the similarities. Laughing at each other brings us closer. If siblings are allowed to laugh at and with each other, they become friends. If they are censored, their relationships will be uncomfortable and conversations strained forever. The 60s and 70s were the generation who brought acceptance, not division. It was done by letting Archie Bunker and Mike Stivic talk. It was more whatever man than how dare you. Comedy is a creative art. It is the only one that can have all kinds of people in one room laughing out loud. And no good art, let alone great art, comes to be if it is inhibited before the pen even hits the paper. Creativity must be as free as possible. The reverse is just not funny. I want to thank my guests on this particular episode of the podcast, Off for Periscope, uh, Sarah Sykes, Deborah Spector, and Rory Vesey. If you like what you heard, uh, tell a friend. We appreciate that. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. 
October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She broke your throne and she cut your hair and fell.